Welcome back to the Sanctifying Story on the Life Given Radio with Ryan Ayers. This is episode 12, October 27th, and this week we are talking about the boys in the boat. Introduction. The cover of The Boys in the Boat tells you this book is about nine Americans and their epic quest for gold at the 1936 Olympics. Perusing the book's contents will reveal it is also a story about ideals. Hitler and his Aryan race clashing against the ideal Americans, and the backwoods north and northwest clashing against the upper crust elite of the American East. The book is also an underdog story, a coming-of-age tale, and a celebration of heroism. But I think what the book is about at its core is not a celebration of heroism, though it is that, nor a clash of ideals, though they do frequently. I think the book at its core is about nine Americans and the pursuit of glory. Section 1. Buckshot. Since the core of the book is a brief one, I have plenty of room to verbally spread out. Here, therefore, are a series of scattershot observations that might not seem related, but will hopefully, in the conclusion, tie up with a neat little bow. Proverbs 22.29 states, Do you see a man who excels at his work? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before unknown men. Solomon illustrates here one of God's recurring design features in the universe, which is cream rises. Excellent work will not go unnoticed. Proverbs 22.29 is especially appropriate for the boys in the boat. At the end of their Olympic race, their coach, who understated everything, unambiguously told the press these nine boys were the finest I ever saw seated in a shell, and I've seen some quirking boatloads. Page 354. It seems appropriate, then, that men who excelled at rowing better than any other group stood before probably the single most influential man of the 20th century, Adolf Hitler, as well as 10,000 citizens in the crowds, and the rest of the world at their radios. A second takeaway is their virtue. It is one thing to perform and do well at something difficult, like a workout or a football game, when everything is pretty equal. It is another to perform when all of the odds are in favor of everyone else. Playing well when the odds are even shows excellent skill. Playing when the odds are against you shows character. The character displayed by the Washington rowing team the subjects, subjects of the book, crops up more than almost anything else in the book. Joe, the seventh oarsman, is dirt poor. He is partly dirt poor because he is growing up in the Great Depression, and partly dirt poor because when he was 15, his family literally left him standing on the front porch in the pouring rain to fend completely for himself. Joe, however, paid for his own high school and fed himself by finding odd jobs during a time when most men couldn't find jobs. He dug wells. He built barns, crawling around in the rafters and pounding nails. He hand-cranked cream separators and lugged 120-pound can cans of milk and sweet cream around dairy farms. He found part-time work felling giant cottonwoods so immense that it took an hour or more for Joe and Charlie to just fell one, pulling an 84-inch two-man saw across the soft white heartwood. Page 62. Heading to the rooms rented for them before they raced to California, 
the Washington, Washington team couldn't help noticing the contrast between California's brand-speaking new boathouse, complete with city water, hot showers, a dining room, cooking facilities, electric lights, and sleeping quarters, and their own accommodations, with its leaky roof, cold river water showers, meager fare, and eight or nine boys to a room. In the Olympic race, the Washington team spent four years training for. The Germans, anxious to prove the Aryan race superior, had implemented new rules for lane selection, rules never used before in Olympic competition, page 335. The Germans had arranged the racing lanes so that it handicapped the fastest and most talented boats and gave every advantage to the slower boats. It gave the protected lane to the host country and her ally, the worst lanes to her prospective enemies, page 334. The day of the race, the eighth oarsman of the Washington team, the oarsman who set the pace for the entire rest of the crew, was sick. While the crowds and the German leaders, Hitler foremost, filed into the stadium to watch, the American boys found a free massage table and laid Don Hume, the eighth oarsman, out on it, like a corpse bundled in overcoats, keeping him warm and dry and rested as long as they could. Page 337. When they climbed into their boats, and all six boats were tensed at the start line, the official starter for the Olympics emerged from his shelter. Almost immediately, he turned to lanes one and two and dropped the flag. Page 340. The Americans and the British never heard him, and never saw the flag drop. Four boats surged forward. The British boat and the American boat, for a, a horrific moment, sat motionless at the line, dead in the water. Page 341. In response to cheating, sudden disease, and the prospect of a titanic battle that they were sure to lose, all eight American oars dug into the water. Page 343. Third, if there is one ref refrain over and over in the book, it is that of unity. When interviewing Joe Rance, the author discovered Joe would tear up most when he talked about the boat. I realized that the boat was something more than the shell or its crew. It encompassed but transcended both. It was a shared experience. When nine good-hearted young men strove together, pulled as one, gave everything they had for one another, bound together forever by pride and respect and love. Page 2. Unity is what bound these boys together and gave an experience beautiful enough to move a man to tears 50 years later by its memory. The em emphasis on unity is everywhere in the book. After FDR's speech to a crowd, the author sums up the moment. If there is little they could do individually, perhaps they lay in something more fundamental. The simple notion of everyone pitching in and pulling together. Page 122. Since his family's utter desertion of him, Joe holds on to his independence, refusing to completely trust others, resulting in poor oarsmanship. George Pocock, a philosopher carpenter and the best shell builder in the world, gives Joe the advice he needs. It wasn't enough to master the technical details of rowing. You had to give yourself up to it spiritually. You had to surrender yourself absolutely to it. Page 214. Joe surrenders himself in the Olympic race. Joe realized with startling clarity there was nothing more he could do to win the race, except one thing. He could finally abandon all doubt, trust absolutely that he and the boy in front of him, and the boys behind him, would all do precisely what they needed to do, at precisely the instant they needed to do it. Page 355. The first chapter of the book puts unity as the chief virtue of rowing. The author of that chapter details what it would take for the scatter of freshman boys of 1933 to be part of the team to win Olympic gold in 1936. The potential for raw power, 
the nearly superhuman stamina, the indomitable willpower, and the intellectual capacity necessary to master the details of technique. And which of them, coupled improbably with all these other qualities, had the most important one? The ability to disregard his own ambitions, to throw his ego over the gunwales, to leave it swirling in the wake of, the, of his shell, and to pull, not just for himself, not just for glory, but for the other boys in the boat. Page 23. Unity, then, is the principal thing in rowing. Conclusion. Man's chief end. So what about rowing could cause an old man simply recalling his experience to break down in tears? Why would rowing a boat fast in an arbitrary direction be worthwhile to anyone? Because rowing is glorious. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism declares, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are designed by God to be earthen vessels that carry his glory, a role we, we, we begin now but fulfill when we are raised up on the last day. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7 and 14-15 But there are also lesser shadows of glory that mimic man's chief end. Proverbs 20:29 20, states, The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Paul tells us, If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. 1 Corinthians 11:15. So there are many kinds of smaller glories, which are shadows of the great glory awaiting Christians at the end of history. These smaller glories are the appetizers in this world to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the New World, Revelation 19.9. Young men's strength and women's hair do not fulfill men's and women's desire for glory, but they do whet the appetite. I do not think it is a coincidence that the men throughout the boys in the boat use religious analogies to describe rowing. For instance, an entire section of the book is titled Touching the Divine, quoting Pocock. Rowing mimics the kind of glory humans were created to be filled with, the kind of glory only found in the worship of God. It is rowing's mimicry of that glory found in worshiping God that makes it worthy of desire. The boys in the boat, then, are pursuing glory achieved through physical excellence. But the boys strive for glory not as Hitler strives to make his Germany glorious. The boys do not row for themselves. They threw their egos over the stern a while back. They pull for the glory of the man in front of them and behind them. They pull for each other's glory. It is this humility in rowing that the author asserts was the doorway to their greatness. It is this self-sacrifice that the author asserts is the most important characteristic of rowing, a characteristic combined with discipline and strength that results in glory that puts to shame all of the Nazi machinations in the Berlin, Berlin Olympics, a glory that is a poem of motion, a symphony of swinging blades, page 249. It is a glory worth enough that whole hosts of men and women strain at oars and devote themselves to all kinds of sports to pursue it, a glory beautiful enough that recalling it fifty years later a man can be moved to tears. And, glorious as it is, it is only a shadow of the glory when the church, in, in unity, humbles herself before the king of glory. This concludes episode 12 of Sanctifying Story. Give us five stars on Apple or Google Podcasts, and give us a follow wherever you listen to the Life Given Radio. Or join the Life Given Radio conversation group on Facebook to become more involved in the Life Given Radio. Until next time, read The Boys in the Boat, and check out the author's other works. Keep on reading, and thanks for listening to Sanctifying Story. <laughs>